This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. It is on a rare occasion indeed that we have such a great guest, such a great topic, and such a lot of material pushing an hour that we elect to devote the entirety of the program to our interview. We are going to do that today because we have David Talbot, the founder of Salon.com, and David generously gave us about an hour of his time. So, without further ado, let us proceed in that direction. For years, our guest today has worked to dig out the news stories, both current and from recent history, that he believes people need to be aware of. As a result, David Talbot founded both Salon.com and has gone on to produce many literary works of note. We've had the pleasure of speaking with David Talbot about two such works. We discussed Devil Dog, his book exploring the life and times of Smedley Butler. And if you don't know Butler's story, you should get the book. That's the place to start. We also discussed Brothers, the hidden story of the Kennedy years. David's look at the struggles of Robert and John F. Kennedy, in particular, RFK's search for the truth about his brother's murder. Mr. Talbot has done us all a favor again with The Devil's Chessboard. Its subtitle is Alan Dulles, the CIA, and the Rise of America's Secret Government. The story of the secret government that the Central Intelligence Agency has become has no more central character than Mr. Alan Dulles. While many details of this story have long been known, David Talbot has added layers of detail which are both surprising and frightening. The Devil's Chessboard outlines how Alan Dulles shaped events in the 20th century. It also raises questions about the CIA's role in the assassination of our 35th president. There's a lot of ground to cover here, so we're delighted to be able to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, David Talbot. Always great to be here. Thank you, Doug. David, can we start with a brief overview of the Dulles brothers? That airport in Washington, D.C. is named after John Foster Dulles. In the 1950s, he ran America's official foreign policy as Secretary of State, but Brother Allen ran our secret foreign policy at CIA. Both were key players in the Cold War. Well, you've summed them up very well. They were, uh, as I like to say, Dick Cheney in some ways on steroids. <laughs> uh, a very powerful uh, fraternal uh, one-two punch. Uh, and their power was based in a kind of a family dynasty that had included uh, secretaries of state and bankers and lawyers. And they themselves became, at a very young age, actually, uh, the two top lawyers on Wall Street. Uh, John Foster Dulles, the older brother, was the uh, chief counsel for the Sullivan and Cromwell, which was the most powerful Wall Street wall firm. And he was joined later by his younger brother, Alan. And really, they began at that point, even though they're in private life on Wall Street, to have a major impact on uh, American public life uh, through their enormous power, uh, representing the financial elite of America. And uh, they exert this power uh, again and again in opposition to uh, democratic presidencies, particularly Franklin Roosevelt uh, during the Great Depression, when Roosevelt, of course, made... uh, historic efforts to regulate Wall Street after Wall Street had produced the enormous crash in 1929, bringing so much misery to the country. And uh, John Foster Dulles counseled his clients at that point to resist uh, President Roosevelt's reforms, uh, Glass-Steagall, of course, 
and uh, the SEC, which was uh, formed at that time to regulate Wall Street. Meanwhile, as World War II begins, Alan Dulles becomes our top spy in continental Europe, and he begins to develop his own policies again in opposition to those of FDR. FDR and Churchill and Stalin, uh, the Allies against the Third Reich, uh, against the Axis, had decided on a policy of unconditional surrender. They were going to crush the Nazi regime. They were not going to cut separate deals with Hitler. They were going to crush the regime and bring the men responsible for that evil uh, Third Reich to justice. But again, Alan Dulles, in opposition to Roosevelt, from his perch in Switzerland, where he's based during the war, begins to secretly meet with Nazi representatives and pursue his own policy of a separate deal with Nazi forces, which does indeed result in uh, a separate deal with Nazi forces in Italy, antagonizing Joseph Stalin, and in some ways instigating the Cold War. Well, you note that back in Sullivan and Cromwell, Prior to the war, they had a lot of German clients, and Dulles found himself over in Switzerland. He he maintained great relations with these people that he'd formerly worked directly with. That's right. He, in many ways, saw himself in service not to the United States as our top spy working for the OSS, which was the predecessor to the CIA during World War II. He, but he saw himself in service mainly to his corporate clients, as you say. And a number of these clients included German clients, um, including some of the more notorious uh corporate empires in Germany, like IG Farben, the chemical conglomerate which produced Zyklon B, the gas that was used to murder so many Jews during the war. You know, the Dulles brothers continue to have a very genial relationship with the executives of these companies right into the early years of the war. They were exchanging Christmas cards and so forth. And so he was ideally positioned. In fact, I think that's why he wanted to be uh, placed in Switzerland during the war, this is Alan Dulles, to continue to serve these German clients, uh, making sure that their their assets and their funds were being properly uh, taken care of in Swiss banks. And in fact, one of the leading banks at the time in Switzerland was the Bank of International Settlements. And it in fact became the Third Reich's most important financial instrument at the global level. This is where they stashed all the loot that they were uh, robbing from uh, countries in Europe and uh, were laundering it and then buying essential war supplies for Germany. And uh, the guy who ran this bank was another crony of Dulles, another Wall Street banker named Thomas McKittrick. And on the board of this bank with Thomas McKittrick during the war were Nazis, high-level Nazi officials. And, in fact, when McKittrick during the war came back to Manhattan to visit, he was celebrated and feted by his Wall Street cronies. They, you know, at a dinner at the Waldorf Astoria and so on. The, the Roosevelt administration was outraged, and Henry Morgenthau, Secretary of the Treasury, uh, among others, thought that McKittrick was a, a traitor and should have been arrested and put on trial for treason. But through the intervention, again, of John Foster Dulles, he's allowed to go back to Switzerland and continue his pro-German uh, policies there. So this is really an outrageous story, the level of collaboration between the Wall Street elite, uh, and, and uh, as represented by people like the Dulles brothers, and Hitler's regime. And, and I think very few Americans know the extent of this collaboration, both before, during, and after the war. Well, I'm glad you took another look at this uh, in your book in some detail. Uh, previously in Devil Dog, you told us about how U.S. business interests had planned to use Smedley Butler to actually depose FDR, and I, I guess uh, 
this really is a classic example of how the powerful interests not only do remarkable things, but also were able to cover them up afterwards. It's shocking in some ways the, uh, how insubordinate, how defiant these powers were during the Roosevelt era, of course, as we've been talking about. And as you say, you referred to in my earlier book about uh, the Marine hero, General Smedley Butler, who was approached actually by some of these Wall Street uh, types to lead an armed march of uh, veterans on Washington during Roosevelt's first term to intimidate Roosevelt and force him to step down. So in other words, they're trying to recruit Smedley Butler, who was this Marine hero, to lead an armed coup against the President of the United States. Smedley Butler instead went before Congress and testified and exposed this plot. And for his heroism, he was treated very shabbily by the press, by Henry Luce, of course, who was, sort of ran the Fox News empire of its day, the Time empire, ridiculed him, said he was making up this whole thing, was a figment of his imagination, but unfortunately it was quite real, this plot against President Roosevelt. And it was one of several, actually, uh, that Roosevelt was forced to deal with uh, while he was president. So as I write in the, in the beginning of the book, Doug, you know, democracy is a fragile uh, creation. It's like an eggshell, as I write, in the, you know, the rough tides of history. And it's amazing, actually, uh, the extent to which democracy does succeed sometimes, historically, against all opposition. And uh, certainly American democracy has been bedeviled and beleaguered throughout its uh, relatively short history and uh, right up to the present day. Well, Dulles was certainly ideally positioned at the end of the war to take part in the resurrection of Germany, which he did, uh, even if to him it meant returning Nazis to power to an effort turned against our wartime ally, the, so the Soviet Union. Can you talk about um, how many, I think Dulles included, sort of thought the Soviets were the real enemy all along? That's right. He, you know, the people like the Dulles brothers thought they could deal with fascism, thought they could make deals with Mussolini in Italy and even Hitler. But communism was a different uh, animal because it was so deeply and fundamentally opposed to the capitalist system. And so uh, the Dulles brothers always thought of the Soviet Union as our primary enemy, even during the war, when the Soviet Union was actually taking the brunt of the war and suffering over 20 million casualties as it fought back the uh, Hitler war machine. And in many ways, of course, the Soviet Union was the primary uh, reason why we prevailed in that war, despite Hollywood mythology. But in any case, even though the Soviet Union was taking such heavy losses and taking the brunt of the war, Dulles was conspiring against this ally, this key ally throughout the war. And he did indeed cut this deal with Nazi forces in Italy that led to an early surrender there. Uh, Stalin thought it was a stab in the back. As I said, it, it really in some ways began to uh, create the tensions that led to the Cold War. That was fine with people like Dulles. He was, meanwhile, in the uh, final days of the war and after the war, busy in Italy and Switzerland and Germany conniving with these former Nazis to save them. These so-called rat lines were set up, these escape routes that ran down from Germany over the Alps through Italy and then overseas, where many, of course, uh, top Nazis were allowed to escape to freedom in Latin America and Franco Spain and elsewhere. And Dulles played a key role in uh, allowing a number of these war criminals to escape. Two of the more notorious ones were Karl Wolf, who was head of the SS in uh, Germany and should have been put on trial during the first round of war crimes. 
And then the top official, spy official, intelligence official on the Eastern Front for Hitler was also rehabilitated by uh, Dulles after the war. He never stood trial. And in fact, through Dulles' intervention and sponsorship, he becomes the top spy in post-war West Germany, a post that he remains in for a number of years and plays a key role in Cold War policy. Well, Reinhard Galen, it's quite, quite, a, quite a story. Reinhard Galen, that's right. The book is The Devil's Chessboard, Alan Dulles, the CIA, and the Rise of America's Secret Government, and we're speaking with its author, David Talbot. Joe McCarthy was running amok in the 50s with accusations about communists hiding everywhere. You cite a rather odd twist in the story, how Alan Dulles may have been a key to taking McCarthy out by asserting that the CIA did not have to answer to Congress. But, of course, that itself uh, set a very bad precedent. Yeah, well, McCarthy in some ways is this sort of unwelcome Frankenstein that's created by the GOP, by the Republicans, kind of like the way that the years of Republican hate speech and so on and the dog whistle kind of messages, racist messages that the Republican leadership has been sending to its base, produced the Frankenstein of Donald Trump and Ted Cruz, people who were blatantly demagogic and uh, intolerant and racist and so on. Well, the same with Joe McCarthy. Uh, the Republicans coming out of World War II and the, the long uh, reign of FDR and the New Deal uh, seized on this club of uh, the red hysteria, anti-red hysteria, the anti-communist hysteria, to use against the New Deal and Franklin Roosevelt and, and to root out all the vestiges of Roosevelt from Washington after his death in April 1945. Truman, of course, is president, and they feel that the White House is theirs for the taking, that Truman is not a strong figure. They have Tom Dewey running against him in 1948. And... Uh, so McCarthyism, you know, springs up from that well of sort of very calculated and cynical, I think, uh, effort on the part of the Republican Party to fan this hysteria that the Reds are about to take over the country. But there, as these things happen, like we see with Trump, the Frankenstein gets out of their control, the Frankenstein being Joe McCarthy. And even after Eisenhower then is elected in 52, and uh, the Dulles brothers, who are a very key factor in that election, really take over Washington at that point with Foster Dulles becoming Secretary of State and Alan Dulles becoming head of the CIA. And really, uh, Eisenhower outsources his foreign policy to the Dulles brothers at that point. But their efforts to control Washington and the political machinery of Washington are frustrated by this demagogue, Joe McCarthy, who's out of control. And he begins, of course, to target even the State Department, claiming that the State Department is riddled with communists and so on. And he even goes after the CIA and the Army, the key, of course, uh, national security institutions. Um, Foster caves to the pressure. He actually does allow uh, this witch hunt to run amok at the State Department, forcing out many dedicated and experienced and, you know, the best and the brightest, really, out of the uh, many of these uh, very important diplomats out of the State Department. But Alan Dulles decides to draw the line with McCarthy, and he plays hardball with him. And he's got just as much dirt, if not more, on Joe McCarthy in his personal life, which was a mess. He was an alcoholic. He was molesting people right and left. Uh, he is, uh, had a very uh, colorful sex life. Uh, and, of course, this is all well known to the CIA. And they play hardball with him. And uh, they succeed in defeating him. 
they call his bluff. He, at the beginning of the end for Joe McCarthy, comes not with the Army McCarthy hearings, which we mostly remember now, but earlier than that, when Alan Dulles and the CIA face him down and uh, frustrate his efforts to target the CIA. At that point, and then, of course, Joe McCarthy descends further into alcoholism and his career is over and he dies at a young age. And as soon as uh, Dulles wins that war with McCarthy and the Dulles faction, you know, consolidates his control of the Republican Party and um, Washington, and, of course, Dick Nixon is one of their key allies and they, in some ways, create Dick Nixon, the Dulles brothers, from his earliest run for Congress, which they help finance. At that point, they're firmly in control of Washington and in many ways of the world. Well, the CIA and the State Department, the, the, the Dulles brothers, as it were, had some successes with covert operations in the 50s. Uh, Eisenhower was not keen about large military operations. He knew more than anybody else how costly they were. When they had success in Iran, success in Guatemala, they really became, uh, they really gained a lot of power in that, and it was about that point in the late 50s, they, they added assassination uh, to their list of tools. Uh, we found out many years later that they helped the murder of Patrice Lumumba in Congo and got involved in efforts to take, uh, to take Castro out in the early days of the Kennedy administration. Can you talk about uh, this turn? Yeah, well, as you say, Eisenhower, you know, in many ways was uh, horrified by war, and he had seen the results of war close up. His worst fear was uh, to have another major global conflagration, a World War III breakout. But on the other hand, he, uh, in uh, trying to avoid that kind of uh, holocaust again, he empowers and licenses and unleashes the CIA under Alan Dulles to do just about anything. And so Dulles does pursue this very dark uh, and aggressive policy where many of the things that we're wrestling with on our conscience today that we think are really uh, results of 9-11, actually were first originated um, by Alan Dulles uh, back in the 1950s. So I'm thinking of things like political assassination, uh, of massive surveillance of private citizens and even allies, of the overthrow of democratic governments, uh, torture, uh, you, you name it. All these policies that, again, as I say, we're grappling with today were actually the creations in many ways of the Alan Dulles era. And I think one of the most ominous uh, developments during this period is the creation of this assassination machine. Now today, of course, we have the remote, uh, you know, targeted killings, the drone operation that I think are, again, another huge stain on America's uh, moral uh, conscience um, and are certainly not uh, subjected to the same kind of legal overview that uh, we, we desperately need. But in the case of Alan Dulles and the CIA, it was done through killing teams that were created by the CIA that operated overseas. I think it was the CIA killing team that killed Patrice Lumumba, although when these uh, assassinations of foreign leaders were first revealed by the Church Committee in the 1970s, the CIA claimed, oh, we were kind of the gang that couldn't shoot straight. Yeah, we tried to kill some foreign leaders sometimes, but uh, we never quite succeeded. And in the case of Lumumba, he fell into the hands of his enemies before we could kill him. Well, the fact is that Lumumba, who was a very important, rising, young nationalist leader in the Congo, in uh, Africa, and was in many ways the hope of the uh, post-colonial generation of Africa that was emerging then in the 1950s, um, he was handed over 
by uh, CIA-supported forces to his enemies, who then, with the collaboration of CIA contractors, people on the CIA payroll, was brutally beaten and tortured and finally murdered, and then disposed of by the CIA agents. So the CIA was instrumental in the execution of uh, Patrice Lumumba in the Congo, and they kept this from a newly inaugurated President Kennedy, the CIA, because they knew that Kennedy was sympathetic to Lumumba's cause, and he would have intervened, uh, no doubt, to have him freed um, from his captors if he had known about this. So they keep, as Kennedy's being inaugurated, they keep this a secret from him. In fact, they keep it a secret for eight weeks into the early days of Kennedy's administration, and Kennedy only finds out about Lumumba's fate from his uh, UN ambassador, Adlai Stevenson, not from the CIA. So the uh, again, the, the kind of insubordination, uh, the defiance against this young new president, Kennedy, uh, is there from literally from day one of his administration from the CIA. We're speaking with author David Talbot about his book, The Devil's Chessboard. All right, let's take a short break. We do need to remind you that the opinions that you hear on this program do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.